Efka. That's my name. If you could give yourself one piece of advice, so going back to like when you're at uh, high school or secondary school, um, about the world today or about something that might help you with your job now or who you are as a person now, what would it be? I would say that if you ever start a board game podcast with a co-host, they might ask you out of the blue very difficult questions that bear no relation to board games but require an intense amount of thought and uh and you just you one day you're just gonna wake up and you're like how did i end up here (laughs) how did i get here Uh i i would say to myself um when you get a choice between learning french or german pick german why german be much more useful in the board gaming world than french will be we're going to germany again aren't we yeah we're going to germany in march for an event that isn't like a convention, uh, but but we've been invited to a thing mm. and we decided, yeah, that sounds cool. We're going to go. So, yeah, board game. All board game roads lead to Germany. That's right. That's what I've right. learned. Yeah. Welcome to Talk Cardboard, a podcast about board games and everything adjacent with me, Elaine, and you, me, Efka. On today's episode, we'll be spicing up your life in June, War for Arrakis, working together to save the world from pollution in Daybreak, and pioneering train travel across 19th century America in Ticket to Ride Legacy, Legends of the West. You know what? When this year started, I thought, what are we going to cover, like, in (laughs) January? Where's all the exciting board games? And then, whoa! Three massive titles in one episode. Oh, better tell us what's in the bonus episode, Elaine. In the bonus episode, we have Mystic Vale and Divinity Original Sin, the board game. Wow. And you can hear our thoughts on that if you become a patron member uh, for patreon.com slash included, where you'll get like a whole bunch of bonus episodes. There's just hours of podcast material waiting for you to be heard. Uh, and you would support us as well, which is a nice thing to do. First, though, we got an email from Half Man, Half Meeple. They say, loved your recent video championing the green trend pushed by several board games last year. Makes me want to buy El Grande even more. It is a consumer hobby and turnover of games is high. To offset this, I would encourage all to think about the incredibly important second-hand market to reduce that consumption. In particular, for those that can afford it, I think about giving and buying old games to and from charities such as Oxfam, which now have excellent online options. We don't do this enough. I agree with this completely. Uh, You know, passing on board games is great. There is a danger that lies in that. And I just kind of want to make people like I don't want to tell anyone off or anything like that. Right. But a lot of the times people buy board games thinking, well, if I don't like it, I'll just sell it. Right. And that sort of attitude can sometimes lead to a situation where you're like buying without thinking. And, and and that encourages more waste as well, right? So it's a balance to be found in everything, I think, you know? Secondhand market, passing on board games you don't want or love anymore is great. Just don't make purchases thinking, you know, like, oh, just, you don't like it, I'll just, uh, you know, like, a, a slightly more time spent on listening to reviews, hey. you know, could save you a bit of money, time, effort, and be better for the environment. You know, I think that applies to everything in our lives though Mm -hmm. you know less waste is better yeah Uh, and if you if something doesn't bring you joy any longer then pass it on don't throw it in the bin i don't think it's about like just buy whatever you like and then you know if you don't like it it's okay 
Mm. I think it's about buying something that you do like, but then passing it on when it loses its spark for you. Uh, yeah, definitely. And uh, do, do you want to hear my funny soup ladle story? Sure. That, that, that sort of thinking got me into buying a soup ladle that is way more expensive. I was looking for a new soup ladle because we just don't have a good soup ladle at home right now. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to buy a soup ladle. So It's not just for soup. It is used for other things. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. But I thought I'll buy a soup ladle, right? You know, that's useful, good. And I, so I went online and I was like, these all look really cheap and shoddy. I, I should buy one that's going to last me a while. I ended up buying a, a handmade soup ladle that uh, <laughs> cost me more than some some not very expensive board games, uh, which I think is maybe too much for a soup ladle. They're, like, I took things too, one step too far. But but I am promised a lifetime guarantee on this soup ladle. Well, there you go. Right? Uh, it comes down to that thing, and I know it's something that your family always... Yeah, I was raised like that, yeah. And something that my family always adhered to, buy the Mm. best that you can afford, right? Mm. So if you can't afford, you know, the really expensive soup ladle, buy the the best that you can, though, right, for for what you're going to use it for. And and make your choices, you know, make your purchasing decisions wisely. Informed on longevity, right? Yeah. Yes. Mm. Because it comes back to that that thing about, you know, the 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 cheap shoes, right? If you buy a pair of cheap shoes that you need to replace every year, they're going to end up eventually costing you more than an expensive pair of boots or shoes that are going to last you 20 years, right? Yeah. But you maybe can't afford that expensive pair of boots to begin with. It's a conundrum imposed to us by capitalism. Talking of capitalism, let's move on to our first game. Dune War for Arrakis comes from publisher Simon by designers Marco Maggi and Francesco Nepitello with art by Henning Ludvigsen, Stefano Moroni, Paolo Parenti and Steve Prescott. Wow, you didn't you didn't start us off lightly, did you? You just went like <laughs> boom for, for the big game hunt, right? First game of the year that we're talking about. Oh, Dune War for Iraq is is big. It's really big. And I I guess that frames our entire discussion because because big is where it's good and big is where it's maybe not so good. If you're not familiar with these designers' work, uh, they have designed uh, War of the Ring, Battle for Five Armies, uh, the One Ring role-playing game in its second edition, and some other games as well. Uh, but but they're primarily known for War of the Ring, which is uh, Lord of the Rings-themed, um, I want to say miniature battle game, bo- battle board game. I think that would be more accurate mm-hmm. because it borrows a little bit from miniature wargaming. It borrows a little bit from historical wargaming and those sensibilities. And it applies all of those to inform this... Um, narrative-driven board game. Now, when I say narrative-driven, I mean loosely, because the idea of War of the Ring was, you know, what if you relive the events of uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, the trilogy, but <laughs> but you enact them via play? And, of course, you have all the characters and all the events that happen in the movies, the sort of beats and... Uh, you can, through play, manipulate them and have different outcomes. Maybe Sauron wins, you know, who knows, right? And sometimes does, because one side plays Sauron and the orcs and everything, right? So this is that same idea by the same designers, but for 
Frank Herbert's Dune. Another IP. Yes, another fantasy IP, mm. you know, fantasy slash sci-fi IP. Um, I guess Dune is definitely within the sci-fi realm, but it's, it's written with the sensibilities of a fantasy book, I would say. It, it, it harkens to me more things like Game of Thrones. And of course, we've seen similar treatments by uh, other designers. You know, Star Wars Rebellion springs to mind, uh, Game of Thrones, the board game, uh, second edition currently. Uh, and probably forevermore um you know like we, we've seen this done we've seen this happen before is this a good representation of dune if what you want from dune is to experience playing all the characters and all the story bits in a kind of a war gamey thing i i think so yes mm. right it, it's definitely big but what appealed to me initially about this game was the idea frankly that simon is publishing this because this is so not their jam i mean yes a big box of miniatures is <laughs> definitely their jam definitely their jam right but but um simon games are not normally this rules heavy this is rules heavy this has rules for everything that happens and there's rules within rules within rules with by rules depending on what phase or situation or you know maybe a specific event triggers in that case something else like there's rules here right and those rules are for one reason and one reason only simulationism mm. to make you feel like you are partaking in this like you are part of this like you are paul atreides or lady jessica or you know any of the uh duniverse characters <gasps> did you make that no, no i don't I, I i think duniverse okay. is a thing All yes right. Uh, sadly, that's not my own invention. Uh, that's good, though. And, and of course, it's timely uh, because the second Denis Villeneuve Dune film yep. is just round the corner. You know, everyone's excited. Uh, he's already talking about the third one where he'll adapt the second movie where, spoilers, Paul Atreides goes bad. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I didn't know that when we started playing. Yeah, mm. well, that's the whole thing with Frank Herbert. He... Um, his whole thing with writing Dune is he wanted to write a novel where the hero's journey is purposely subverted and the hero isn't so much a hero. What if hero, but bad? And then people read it and were like, this is such a great hero's journey book, right? <laughs> and he was like, right, I didn't get my message across clearly. I have to so, write more. <laughs> so so it, it basically when when the second book starts, he's already like the worst possible being you can imagine right, right? so it, it's not it's not great right like things don't turn out well for the universe for the universe mm -hmm. um <laughs> and in that regard war for arrakis is kind of weird because it, it is not the subversion of heroes it is the heroes you, you are partaking in a hero's journey or the anti-hero's journey if you're playing as the harkonnen because this is again another interesting thing about this is this is like one of these big skirmish board games but it mm. is primarily for two players one side plays the house atreides the other side plays the house harkonnen and they have slightly different rules to again enhance that simulationist aspect so Let's they talk. come from different places, don't they? 
exactly like, as as, play, as um characters yeah yeah so let's talk a little bit about uh what you do in this game what happens you know and and how these different sides reinforce like uh the feeling that you are partaking in dune uh if you're playing as house harkonnen you are in control of arrakis already uh not not like the first time around the second time around you know so this pretty much starts off where the second film is gonna you know start off you you're gonna be in this conflict already right Mm -hmm. and and your chief interest is in harvesting spice because um at the end of every round at the beginning of every round you're going to place a bunch of uh harvesters on this absolutely gigantic board with so many spaces on it it is preposterous it took up two-thirds of our team just the board just the board alone it it is so big it came in two panels because (laughs) one panel would have been too unwieldy so that that's the size we're talking about here right so you will get some harvesters maybe three maybe four there's different numbers based on different situations but like at the beginning of the game you just get free right and like place them on various spots on the board wherever you like if they survive this entire round and they have plenty of opportunities to die they will harvest you a little bit of spice not enough for what you need because at the end of every round you need to pay off um these uh space companies the lansra the spacing guild and chome right you need to pay them all off with spice harvest otherwise you're going to go down in rank of these companies and you're going to get less action dice meaning you're going to do less things however you will get more vehicles so you can harvest more right so your chief interest is establishing these uh like harvesting locations that you need to protect from the house atreides player and why might the harvesters not survive, Efka? Well, because the Atreides player it has way less action dice than the Harkonnen player, and they want to level that balance out. They will go out and attack these harvesters to weaken the Harkonnen player. Now, outside of this entire conflict, we also have the two kind of victory point tracks that mm. everyone is trying to achieve because... Uh, everyone wants to win the game, right? So the house Harkonnen <laughs> simply needs to get uh, 10 supremacy points. Mm-hmm. If they get those, they win the game. The first five, they can accrue by spending excess spice, which is kind of hard to get. I've played my entire game of Dune War for uh, Arrakis without ever doing this once mm-hmm. uh, because my harvest has died a lot. But y- you can go up the track like that. But then you need to destroy... Uh, the House of Trade sieges, which are like their outposts, and based on what level of siege it is, that's how many supremacy points you're going to get. The House of Trades player has a different objective. They have three different prescience victory points: green, yellow, red. Um, and they have a secret objective card that says what thresholds these need to reach. The total adds up to like 18 or 19. Right, yeah. Yeah. But uh, they will also have three prescience cards for uh, every round, and every round they can complete two of them, that propose various stipulations. And if you achieve those, you will score those prescience points. Mm. They can also attack the Harkonnen player settlements, just like the Harkonnen player can attack the sieges, and based on what level settlement it is, they'll get 
like they'll be able to go at the track yeah on all the tracks for the level of uh settlement so that's that's a nice tasty bonus however because it's a very asymmetric start the harkonnen player basically starts in the middle of the map surrounded by mountains like all the advantages that they can have they want to be protected from the sand whereas the atreides players are used to the sand and don't get the penalties that the harkonnen player gets if they're in the middle of the sand pit Exactly. So that is our theatre of battle. Yes. This this is like the positions are set, you know, everyone is ready for a fight. Uh, what happens next? Is up to you. Well, I was going to say, it's a bit of a slow trudge <laughs> is what happens next. <laughs> because, it's almost like walking through sand. Uh-huh, yeah. So here here's where I'm split mm. on w- War for Arrakis. So I will fess up... I've never played War for the Ring mm. or of the Ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have had a copy of Battle for Five Armies, but I found the rulebook so obtuse. I read it three times and I was like, I. it's not that I don't understand the game. I just have so many questions that sitting down and playing this feels like, I don't know, just incredibly daunting. And I, you know, I'm a board game reviewer. I, I shouldn't feel like this, right? But there was something about that rulebook that made me jump away from it so hard that i was just i, I just i'm not sure i want to have this experience now simon is is known for actually one thing that i'll always give simon is their rule books are pretty good right i i, I get a clear impression of how to play the game uh you know I, it's it's definitely been something that's been proofread you know fixed for clarity edited good this is kind of that but but it meets it somewhere in the middle i learned the game you know, I understood how to play the game. I was able to teach you the game. Yes. Uh, there were niche cases where I was just like, I just don't know how this works. But I think that's that's yeah. normal in any big game. I posted three questions on Board Game Geek. I looked up a couple of other questions that were already answered. But after that, I was pretty good. I was yeah. pretty confident about how to play. It's not the best rule book in the world, but it did a serviceable job of teaching me this really, really big game, right? So the rules grid, it's it's hard. There's a lot. There's a lot to remember about how this works and this works and this works. And our first game, and I will caution people, we, me, you and me, we play our first game probably more different than most people most people will probably just play a game by the rules and how they understand and then they will go on bgg and find something mm. we can't do that no. we, we need to be like as informed as possible we need to be playing the game as it's intended yeah so we will stop look things up so our first game took five hours yeah uh, and <laughs> it it's quite a long time. I, I think this is a more two to three hour game. It's still big. It's it's a big experience that's, that's slow and grindy because um, the battles, and he, here's where I come to the battles, right? The battles aren't actually that exciting. There is there is an interesting system in there, mm-hmm. right? So you have two different kinds of units. You Well, you have five different kinds of units you have basically you have your regular units then you have your elite units and you have your special elite units the difference between regulars and elites is that the elites have like two hit points instead of one they basically downgrade to a regular as soon as they take a hit and the special elites they're like elites but they also like cancel one defense symbol from Mm -hmm. battles so these are the fighting units each unit you have in battle will provide you with an extra die for that battle uh, however, there's also leaders. Now, leaders can be like regular leaders or named leaders. These are all the characters from the movies, right? And 
what they do is they don't provide extra dice and they can't be without units they need to like be accompanied by other soldiers but they will convert special symbols on dice into hits or defenses but mm. otherwise that's all dice are you pile up your armies uh and you then roll some dice based on how many units you have every hit is a hit they have to take one damage uh every defense shrugs off a hit and then every special symbol is, do you have a leader? Well, then it does what the leader says. But all they ever say is, it's an attack, it's a hit, or it's a defense, or it's a hit and a defense. It's two hits. But it's never anything that's like particularly interesting or evocative of that character. So a lot of the combat is just like, we roll some dice, and then some units die, and then we roll some dice again. And then some units die. And maybe if it's a really big battle, we'll roll dice like a third time until everyone just dies out, right? It's it's serviceable. It's okay. It doesn't do much that interests me or excites me, especially when, like, the map is huge. There's a lot of spaces on the map. And armies, by default, there's a big exception to that, by default, they move one space, mm with a movement and they can't move further unless you spend another action die to move them further to get to the battle can take a long time and then you roll some dice and it's done where the game is interesting is within the action cards so every there's like three layers of how you take actions in this game first you roll some action dice and assign them to action slots and then spend a die you can do that action right each action slot has like a number of options so for example the strategy dice will let you either move two legions which are groups of units or attack with one legion it's as simple as that it's either some movement or some attacking you know but there's a second layer if you have a named leader a character from the movie or the book you will have like a bonus cooler action with that that you can perform with that die once a round so like okay there's a little bit more interest there and then the third layer is you can spend an action die and spend like cards from this deck that you draw that are again just actions but they're more interesting actions they really kind of change up the rules of the game and i think predominantly you will be using those to do things because they are generally better than what you could normally do and that kind of harkens back to things like twilight struggle you know like an action driven war game yeah. effectively it's a blend of both it's a bit of armies on the map and it's a bit of like sort of twilight struggle and it's a lot of simulationism uh, it's a lot of names from the duniverse all kind of blended together into a big rules heavy voluptuous um melange pardon the pun uh of because it's the spice melange oh yeah yeah yeah, okay. yeah. nice uh nice. Uh, it you know of of dune things elaine what did you think about it you said a lot efka i did you I, said ever such a lot it's a big game yeah, uh, yeah you know uh so you mentioned about so there's two things that you, you said really there. There's the first of all that the combat itself is a bit dull but serviceable and the game comes alive with the actions. And I, I kind of agree with you on both of those. Um I think the tactical decision making uh is very hinged 
on the cards that you are playing or holding mm-hmm. um, because they do, like you said, you know, they really change what you can do because the, the actions that you can do are um, clear to the other player because you roll your dice and you place your dice on the actions that they are able to do. So you have an idea of what the other player can do on their turn. Mm-hmm. And you started with, what, seven dice, I think? Eight. I, eight dice, and I started with four. So I knew you had a lot more... Um, actions that you could do but then the cards don't just do things you know that are a bit different but they are the surprise in the game so like when you go into battle you don't know um whether someone has got a card that will you know effectively cancel your attack or give them extra bonuses of some kind that will stop something dying or do you know what i mean like they are the most interesting element of the game yes one one very striking moment was two cards uh that were played in the game that that kind of shifted the perspective of what was happening right so one was a card you played and one was, was a the card one where i could go up the tracks yes yeah, the, okay. the, so like we mentioned uh you were you were playing as the atreides player there's three prescience tracks and you have to hit certain thresholds on those free tracks to win the game yes right so there's not a lot of control in that because you can complete like prescience cards but what ones come out you know it's hard like sometimes you just want the number to go up and sometimes the number isn't right or whatever you know Mm -hmm. so this card did a big thing it let you take one number down to put another one up and as soon as you played that you moved one number down six spaces and you moved <laughs> a number another number six spaces up and i was like oh no have i lost mm. right immediately and so but that made you change your tactics mm. and i found that very interesting and i mistimed that very slightly um, and I misplayed it very slightly. Because you still needed one more point. Yes, on the yeah. track that I moved down. Yes. Um, and that point I knew was still available to me and not maybe that difficult to get because um, there are ecological research stations that if I, as the Atreides player, go on to, I immediately reveal the bonus which is to go up on one of the three tracks and you don't know which one it is until you uncover it but there are only two of each color two reds two greens two yellow i had already revealed both yellow i'd already revealed one red so i was guaranteed that it was either a green two and three chance two, right yeah two, yeah two greens or i mean one green or one green or one red yeah so that didn't make a lot of sense but you know what i mean so yeah two and three chance that i would get a green mm. So I played that slightly wrong and because and and I timed it slightly wrong as well because I thought you I don't know if I thought you didn't have an action left or I thought I knew what you were going to do with your last action and maybe I did know what you were going to do with your last action but then because I played it when I did it completely changed what you were doing and suddenly I was being attacked from all angles yeah right? and and my my clever plan of of because i i'd you know you know when you're playing uh noughts and crosses and you you put in a cross or a naught so that you can win either way it doesn't matter what the other player does you're going to win anyway you're like okay i've got this i, I can do yeah. this and i'd kind of done that but then you absolutely came down on me like a ton of bricks and i, did. I, did. And I could no longer win either of either way that i thought i could win so that really changed it and the the combat that we did 
Um, although I know you said it's, you know, a little bit plain and maybe that should be because you were only either rolling a hit, a, a defense or mm. maybe a two hit or, you know, whatever mm. the special ability, which is not that interesting. It still was an interesting combat. Yes, because that literally determined who was going to win the game because Correct. it would, made me push the pedal to the metal. Right. And it's like I have to attack everything now. Right. Right, because either you won or I won. Yes. Like, in that moment, it was the deciding moment as to how the dice fell. I want to contextualise another card, right? Because that card only makes sense when, when I explain this first sure. situation, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So you did something that made me realise, oh my gosh, you're, you're, you're going to win at the end of this round, right? And like you mentioned, I only had one action die left. Mm. But again, I had those cards, <laughs> right? So one of the interesting things about the game is that you, as the Atreides player, your, your major victory points, you know, like I, I can't interact with. You can interact with my harvesters, mm. right? You can mm. destroy them, take them off the board, right? Like there's one way you can stop me from gaining victory points, right? I can't. You either do the things that are on those cards that you are asked to do, or you don't, right? Mm. I haven't. I can't take them away. I can't control them, unless I can, <laughs> right? So, for example, in that situation, you said you had one card that said, "Oh, have Paul Atreides and Lady Jessica in one area, and then do something," right? Yes. And like it's like you said, I still had one die left, right? And there was that card, and I was like, okay, if Elaine completes this objective, I definitely don't have another round, right? I've lost the game. Mm. So I need to stop her from completing any of the prescience cards, right? And lo and behold, I've been holding in my hand this entire time <laughs> a card that says, if there is a named character, la di da, just remove them, right? Yeah. Yeah, just remove them. They go into the regeneration tank, they'll reappear later in the game, you know. But I had a way to interact whether with whether you claim an objective or not, and I saved that card for just the right moment. I played it, bought myself around, which brought us to the situation you're yeah. describing, yeah, where we had this massive all-out fight to see who wins the game, right? What I what I do like about the game a lot is that there is some hidden information and some open information for both players it looks initially like the atreides player has a lot more information because mm. the atreides player has uh hidden values to their fortresses sieges sieges thank you i'd forgotten the word to their sieges whereas the harkonnen player you know what the values of the the settlements are so it looks like that's going to be harder for the harkonnen player um but also, the Harkonnen player knows what the objective cards for not the not the overall main objective, mm. but the three prescience cards are for the Atreides player. So they know what you are trying to achieve every round, right? And they can stop you or try and stop you doing that. And and I really like that dynamic of oh, I do know this information, oh, I don't know this information, I don't know what cards you've got, you don't know what cards I've got, right? And this kind of to and fro, and it does feel, I was going to say like a battle. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that, that maybe is a little bit try, I don't know. It does feel like you are going, you are making decisions on the fly all the time. You've got a plan. Yeah. But things change. Wheels so within much. wheels, right? A yeah. Bit, yeah. Mm. Things change so much that you need to reevaluate that plan continually. So with that, I don't know about you. I, I like it. I, I I there was something about it that didn't wow me immediately. Mm. It I I wonder how much and I'm not the kind of person who wants to go play a board game to reenact a book or a movie or whatever. That it just 
doesn't interest me, right? Even if I like the thing, much less if I'm not really invested in that thing, like I am, I'm not that invested in the Duneverse. Like, I, I just don't, I don't want to start about Frank Herbert, right? Like, I really don't want, he's, he's a very, he was a very strange man who had some very strange, I would sum up, okay, here's a short, I would sum up <laughs> Frank Herbert as a non-caricature version of Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation. Yeah. He's that guy, right? He was that guy. And, and he had some, interesting ideas and he had some ideas that were you know a little out there right uh and so dune has uh, dune's prose is also very i don't want to say bad it's just clunky i think i think the prose itself is clunky the narrative structure is interesting right but it's clunky so i'm not i'm not that invested in this mm. I'm, I'm intrigued but i'm not you know the setting doesn't grab me so i i don't know how someone who is in love with this setting you know would would react to this whether it would satisfy them on that same level that say like star wars rebellion satisfies a star wars enthusiast right. or a, you know game of thrones the board game satisfies a game of thrones enthusiast whether all those beats of like capital letter nouns uh and events from the books and movies you know translate well to this act of play i i i'm not sure that it achieves that because none of these are like as exciting as they need to be and and on the other hand there is that sort of like strategy board game level you know mm. and and on that level there's like dice and that aren't particularly interesting and leader abilities that aren't super interesting but there are these wheels within wheels moments where like you play these cards and you know, you kind of manipulate the situation into your advantage that do have that sort of sense of like, was interesting things are happening here, you know? So it's, for me, it's an uneven experience. Yeah, I said to you that, I well, I don't know anything about Dune. I don't know the Dune-iverse. I've not read the books. I've seen the film, but that's about it, right? Mm -hmm. And... So for me playing it, it was just like a fantasy world. It could have been anything. It was it, so I wasn't hung up on whether this was true to the book or the film or whatever. It was just fantasy characters doing fantasy things. Okay, and for me that was fine. Um, and I think if you are a Dune fan, if you are into the Dune-iverse, this is not a bad example of a game. Mm. So it, it's not just a pasted on theme. Or yeah. pasted on setting, it does evoke something from those those worlds, right? Or mm. that world. So I appreciate the fact that board games are trying to encapsulate an IP within the game more now than, than I think they used to. Because I had a Twilight Zone board game and it was roll and move. And <laughs> yeah. it was nothing to do with the Twilight Zone. It was just uh like the artwork was a bit Twilight Zone-y. That was it, right? Yeah. So, so I appreciate that games are trying to do that a bit more. Having said that, I agree with you, it's a little bit of an uneven experience, but it's not my favourite style of game, and I know nothing about the Juniverse. But I still enjoyed it. I think my one final criticism is its size, and, and not in a kind of like, oh, Simon makes big, big board games. I think they were actually weirdly reserved, in, in this situation, like the options were slimmed down. There was like, so there's the Kickstarter box that is different from the regular box. There's no more stretch goals box, but the stretch goals just come in the Kickstarter box, right? 
but the stretch goals were just like alternative setups mm. and like one game mode mm-hmm. with like a giant worm miniature. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, which honestly, I, because the leaders are so uninteresting, mm. and that's what all these alternative modes like setups bring in. They they bring in like different leaders into play. I don't think it changes the game that much okay. that that like it's necessary. And then the game came with two like little like module expansions again that that do introduce new rules but those will be available if you want to buy you know like normally right yeah. so so this was like not a big kind of like simon fomo move right they also did like a playmat and plastic tokens but i'm a i'm a i'm a greener board game enthusiast now so i just said no thank you no <laughs> no to those right so but there is still something about just the size of this right that is so big where i feel like maybe some of the game design was spent to accommodate the number of miniatures that the game needed to include because because the board is so gigantically big that some of it becomes like the battles become uninteresting like you do something like on one side of the board right that felt important and then you forget about that for the entirety of the game right and it just sort of stays there and it doesn't matter anymore. It feels like there's like a weird like a weird symptom of waste within play itself, right? Like you have all these figures and some of them go and do something and they just kind of become irrelevant. That went a little bit dark. Well, I, I'm sorry, but like that's how I feel about it, right? <laughs> like then you like take some other figures and send them somewhere else where it, like now that's important, right? That's, that's battle. Yeah, but well, yes, but I think... I enjoy games that have a more kind of a circular element uh, yeah, of play where like things that you've done before suddenly like impact like like like, like let's say oh there's a straggling unit here but maybe it can influence something later you know that sort of thing is a lot more interesting to me I think this board is too big I think this board is really big. really big and I think it's only this big and has only this many spaces to kind of make sense for this many miniatures maybe that's a little cynical and i appreciate that that might not be true that it was always intended to have x number of minis because that's how the game was designed okay maybe but i don't feel like that's the case my my heart is saying no my heart is saying there was a target for a number of miniatures and and that and that that, that number has happened and the design bent itself around that number that's my guess uh and I, I feel the game suffers for that. We've had quite a few more emails regarding being content creators and contentification. And I don't want to read any more of those out because I feel like we've covered those. We've said a lot about those topics in, in other podcast in other podcast episodes. So I don't want to keep going over the same thing again. But I do want to say thank you to everyone who wrote in with their thoughts. Our second game is Daybreak, which comes from publisher CMYK by designers Matt Leacock and Matteo Menapace with art by Madsberg. Did you know mm. that Daybreak uh, has a different title in Germany? No, what is it? It's E-Mission. Oh, that's clever. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's clever. I mean, I like Daybreak. It's it's a pretty good title, right? But E-Mission. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Points, points mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. Points for the game as well. I really like this. I had a very good time with it. Uh, if you're familiar with Matt Leacock's designs, you might know what you're in for. It's a cooperative game, like Pandemic. But here's the thing. So when I heard about Daybreak, right, I, I was immediately sold on the concept. The artwork is gorgeous. It's so lush. It's like very high contrast, bright colors, sort of like polygon style artwork, yeah. I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, but like all the cards are illustrated so beautifully. The cover is gorgeous, you know, and the setting, right? It is stop global warming. Stop, you know, climate pollution. Stop the temperature going up. Yeah, right. Of the world. Like, it, it is very prescient and timely. And, uh, you know, like it, it speaks about a subject that's important to all of us, but it speaks about it in an interesting way. Um, so uh, the setting hooked, sold you know, want to play it, right? But the one thing that, like, everyone's sort of reporting on this, like, I I feel like, like, a trick has been missed somewhere, because everyone is talking about it, rightfully, because, you know, Matt Leacock, you know, in comparison to, well, it's a bit like Pandemic, right? It's nothing like Pandemic. I I just don't think it's it's like Pandemic at all, right? In, In broad senses, yes, right? It is a cooperative game where you're fighting fires, in this case, sometimes literally, mm. uh, but in in a, in a kind of more granular sense of like the co-op game spectrum, there is a big Spirit Island vibe that is happening in this game for me, and that is because there are a lot of cards, and it's a card-driven game that mm. cards inform the actions that you can do. But as part of this game, you will put card on top of card on top of card to gather tags and empower like your act, change the actions that you can do, right? The game is so dynamic and vibrant in terms of what you're able to do on this turn to manipulate the various dials that you need to make go up or down or whatever, right? That like, it's just so frenetic and fast and dynamic like it it feels different on every turn that you play like things that you could do last turn are now entirely different this turn you know and you've built this sort of like kind of almost like an engine you know of of what you can do now Uh, but because new cards come in every round new abilities come in every round and recontextualize what you can now achieve. Oh, it's so good. And okay, Spirit Island is a, it's a big comparison. It's not like Spirit Island, but it feels a bit like Spirit Island. And I'd say like for me the sort of the big overall description of this was what if Pandemic met Spirit Island? You know, <laughs> this is like somewhere in the middle. It's that kind of feel. I I think I kind of see what you mean. I'm not sure. Like I, Whereas pandemic is something's already on fire, you're putting it out. This is more like it's not quite on fire yet, but it could be if you leave it any longer. So where's your fire extinguisher? Get it ready. It's, well, it that's, feels that, more like that. That is the pandemic moment because with pandemic you have like well, there's some some disease cubes around, you know, and then they accumulate and you go oh boom right. But, but in this game, the world is okay, right? And you're you're working together. Everything is fine. But you just have to maintain that. I guess, yeah, okay. So, yeah, maybe it is a bit like Pandemic. Then I, I agreed with you when you said this is nothing like Pandemic because it doesn't feel like it at all. Yeah. Right. But that kind of ethos of it is very similar. You're right. 
Well, you, it's funny that you say that, like, the world isn't on fire. And, and this is the cool way that Daybreak contextualizes, you know, climate change, because nothing is bad right now. Like, when you start, like, all the bad things are not happening, right? Mm. Except you have this board in front of you that has, like... Dirty energy, 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 dirty energy. Some green energy. Some clean stuff, yeah. Then factory, 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 car, car, cows. Cows, yeah. Right? In this game, you can get rid of cows. You can remove cows from the world. Like, I'm... So I love animals, but cows is, like, my least favorite animal. Like, I just do not get on with cows at all. Well, they're and, like a mosquito or something. I, okay. Cows don't really do anything. It's not the cows' fault. You know, it's us let, breeding the cows let and me, us clearing Let forests. me rephrase that. They're my okay. least favourite mammal, you know? Uh-huh. okay. Just, they just okay. don't do anything that I'm excited about. <laughs> and it's got nothing to do with that time when a cow almost killed us. Ah, uh, yeah, by, by jumping on my car. Yeah. No, it didn't jump. I thought it was going to jump on my... It took my wing It was off. so close. But um, It was yeah. so close. It was charging through the side of our car. <laughs> it was terrifying. I thought I was... You know, that's it. I'm going to get squashed by, by a cow. Quick. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so you can remove cows from the world. So thanks, Matt. I really, really but appreciate that. milk and cheese and... Goodbye, cows. And, and I don't know. They help us to farm, don't yeah. they? Yeah. They pull plows. Anyway. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, so there's all these tokens that are bad, yeah. right? And at the end of the round, each of these tokens, you know, cars, factories, cows, uh, dirty trash. energy. Yeah. yeah. Trash, yeah. yeah. Every single one of them will produce, and you have a lot, yeah. right? They will produce... Carbon. One carbon cube, yeah, right? And 10 carbon cubes is you go up permanently 0.1 degrees in a two-player game in a two-player game yeah so bad now there's some oceans and forests on the board that will absorb some of this carbon so they'll shrug this off but nowhere enough to not immediately increase that 0.1 degrees right so at the end of the first round you, you you can't like do that much you will go up in temperature right so that's like the the situation where we meet the world at nothing is technically bad mm. but things are set up in such a way that it will be bad very very soon and there's very little you can initially do to alleviate it mm. but each card you get represents various climate improvement things growing forests introducing clean energy removing pollution you know removing cows uh, (laughs) removing cars and and so on and at first they're very slow but each card also has a tag maybe a couple of tags and when you play a new card you have like five columns right you can play a card to the same column that already has a card so you can cover up the existing action but keep the tag available Yeah. yeah or you can put the card underneath the cards just have the tags from the card that you played right and have the previous action but maybe now more powerful because there's new tags underneath it right and so the first round communally between us we managed to install two clean energy tokens which was not a lot through some clever combination of cards and like there's these like public 
financing things or something like that. There's like initiatives, right? Like global projects. Global projects, right? Mm. So through some like combination of global projects and um, you know, clever card play. In the second round, we between us, we installed eight green energy and removed a bunch of dirty energy right everything just went oh we're so much greener now right like right but you have to keep the energy level up anyway you can't just keep removing dirty energy and go well i don't have that much clean energy but that's fine because you need to power your populations because if you don't power the population that you have then uh you will get community and crisis tokens, which is bad because it is one of the ways that you will lose the game. And they make you draw less cards as well. And mm, you want the mm. cards because it's the cards that let you do things. It's a very The worse clev- it gets, the worse it gets. Yeah, it's a very mm. clever system because through play, it basically shows you the process of how we can get there, mm. right? Now, what it does... The, the the fantasy part of this is that it's like one person plays China and one person plays America in a two player yeah game. or you know like Europe also or whatever Europe and majority world yeah, but yeah. you can only play those in a high player count game you can't yeah. choose to play them in yeah. a two player game which is fine you know but like uh you know like there's an amount of working together there that is. First of all, evident because it's a co-op game, but also like some cards like, uh, like oh, hey, you can send some of this clean energy energy that you made if you have too much, you know, like to another player. Like, right, yeah, that's going to happen in the real world, right? So it, it, it weirdly contextualizes the real world barriers, right? Mm. So it's very prescient in that way. And I know like Daybreak received some criticism for that, like, you know, oh, like well, it wouldn't work like this in the real world because we couldn't get the people to work together, right? But for me, it actually worked even better because it said yeah like this it, is it, the limitations right it shows you what the limits are because yeah. the limits are so self-evident in how this board game you know doesn't work in the real world right yeah. and, and i actually i think it's genius because of that but also it kind of creates it creates an environment pardon the pun for you to want to play right like because it's like you know like oh hey we get to work together and you know try and kind of solve this thing and obviously by playing a board game you can't actually save the world right but but it can contextualize things and and you know like make them a bit more evident show you what the challenges are show you like how these things work so one of the things uh about this game that's also really cool is that every card that you draw has a little qr code on it right and you scan that qr code and it actually tells you about how this works in the real world like it it takes you to a page Mm. with information and you get to learn and i mean that i think that's really cool Mm. right but for me what worked even more like none of these qr codes were as interesting as sitting me down in front of the table and going right this percentage of pollution is from waste yeah right which is like one token and this percentage of pollution is from factories which is like eight tokens yeah Yeah, yeah, right like it depends on the player right and you're like oh when you see that (laughs) as someone who's in charge of it right that is so different right and the effect of that is so different and it immediately shows you what our challenges are right it shows you the effect that 
like, you know, oh, yeah, you know, we know trees absorb, you know, CO2 and whatever. Like, it shows you how much not enough it is yes. in numerical terms yes. because you get to manage that, right? I, it, it's a fantastic experience, but also it's such a fun game. And there are crises events uh, that will make you, like, remove forests mm. because, you know, the trees are burning because... You know, the world is on fire, literally, because the temperature has risen too much of the world and the uh, the sea ice is melting yeah. and this is happening and the, you're taking sea off and like, so you're losing bits of forest and the amount that the sea can handle as well. Like, mm. it's, it's like, oh no. But, but you spent half the round just building up I that know, forest, right? right? Like, that's such a different hit, right? Ah, you it? know, it, it, it's, it really is... Incred I think Daybreak is incredible because yeah, like I, I know we 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 talked a lot about you know how it portrays uh, in climate change and environmental disasters right and that, it's obviously important and what the game is trying to convey right but it's fun through play mm. right these combos are fun to set up because when you do achieve them right they they are so like powerful and impactful and they do things yeah. and you're like oh okay right but it is in tandem with its setting that it creates that impact and it creates that yeah. fun like the card combinations are a lot of fun even if you isolate the setting but with it together it, it's a whole different thing right so it's a, a whole lot more impactful yeah yeah i think this is very clever i think I this think is so really really good and it, it's one of the more enjoyable co-op games I've played in a while. I think what's clever about it too is that it tells you all of this without being preachy. It doesn't come across as didactic in any way. It's like, well, you know, do this and this will work. Right, right? yeah. Uh, if you don't do this, then you will lose. Yeah. And And then you apply that to what is really happening. And like you said, it contextualizes what we could do to achieve this in in the real world and i appreciate that it's not going to happen and it made me a little sad for that i said to you do you, do you think this this would be really good if if uh, all the leaders of these uh countries and different uh regions of the world came together and played this game do you think it would have an impact on them and you were like <laughs> no <laughs> you know i was cynical my hopeful heart says maybe but you know and obviously it's not that easy to do it's not you know playing a game save the world right mm. but but it does make you think why aren't we doing this why are we still doing the things that make the temperature rise and melt the sea ice and chop the forests down and why are we still generating so much waste why aren't we using clean energy you know we could use wind farms we could use solar energy and i i know that you know one of the arguments of not using solar energy in britain is because we have no sun but it, it apparently does work you can still harness solar energy even with when it's cloudy and rainy yeah so why aren't we doing this and and there are very definite answers to that because people are greedy yeah so um a couple notes on the production i was about to mention that too yes it's great it's made entirely out of fsc certified paper it contains no plastic whatsoever mm. uh the only bit of plastic seeming thing is is like a biodegradable sticker that replaces the shrink wrap i will say that my copy came with all the stickers like 
Tone. Tone. Yeah. Like, so it's effectively no shrink wrap. But, like, do you know nothing what? Nothing was missing. Nothing was missing. And I, I, the reason I really don't care, not just don't care, but really don't care, is because, yeah, this one was. Next one won't be, right? People are working this out. We are implementing new systems. It'll take some time and trial and error. But and if we don't try, then we will never figure it yeah. out. And, yeah, I'm happy to have these slight production issues if it means that we get to a better place eventually but yeah like like we've seen from el grande and earthborn rangers you know like no shrink wrap you know no no plastic only paper cards they feel nice they 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 are really really nice uh the entire thing biodegrades into nothing eventually you know so you won't leave like a bunch of plastic lying around Mm -hmm. uh when you no longer need the game anymore because Mm -hmm. that time will come in one way or another (laughs) uh um and 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 on a final note to the person who left the comment in our game of the year video where we gave you know board games like the thumbs up for going green right don't ever use the word sleep shaming at me anymore i will sleep shame you because you know what my right for like wanting to save the environment is justified against your petty need to sleeve your cards it's just unnecessary yeah i i kind of would like to know actually to anyone that is listening have you ever had to purchase a second copy of a game because you'd actually worn it out by playing it because you had made the game unplayable by using the cards or scuffing the board from moving things around on the boards or whatever is has anyone actually bought a second copy of a game because they have worn one out can I make that question rhetorical? Yes. Because here's the thing, right? Someone will obviously say yes, right? But my argument is that it doesn't matter because count the number of, if you're a heavy sleever, count the number of games you sleeved and how much money you spend on sleeves versus how much money do you think you would spend by like, you know, rebuying one or two games out of your entire collection. Yeah, and that, that was kind of my point. Like, does it weigh up with the amount of waste that we are creating by having these games that potentially will last forever mm. through the amount of plastic that is in them? Yeah, well... Probably I, not. You know, it, it, one final thing here on Daybreak, mm. you know, it, it came with um, four kind of cardboard trays to put your chits in and there's more there's way more types of chits than Mm. four so four is not enough and i felt like well okay i i I just don't have a way to store all my components you know in a way where all they're all perfectly divided and i caught myself thinking that and when no 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 (laughs) stop that that's the old way of thinking fine right it's It's fine fine. just yes it, it it's a little more tedious to dump out all the components and maybe just separate a few types. But maybe we need to start thinking about these things, you know, that maybe not everything has to be perfectly separated and maybe a little bit more faff is a good thing because it makes you think more about, you know, a little bit more effort to bringing the game to the table maybe is the barrier that we need to not buy so many games. Maybe not everything has to be so perfectly convenient that that we can bypass any thought that goes yeah. into it. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I do agree with you on that. It didn't bother me 
having them all mixed together. We could have separate. We could have dumped them out on the table and separated them perfectly easily. Mm. It, you know, it was fine. I will say one more thing, and I know we keep saying one final thing on uh-huh, direct, uh-huh. but I will say one more thing about production. Um, there is a problem which is significant because it determines uh, whether you lose or not when the temperature track hits the top of top level. Mm-hmm. Um, because on one hand, it looks like you do lose immediately. And on the other hand, it looks like you don't lose immediately. And there was some confusion, but it is answered. Matt Leacock, in fact, answered it on BGG and said, uh, yes, this was like a, a mistake on the board. It will be rectified in like any further editions of this game. Uh, you do lose immediately when uh, the bars reach the top of the temperature track. I just wanted to mention that to anyone that buys this game and is confused about that. Our last game is Ticket to Ride Legacy Legends of the West. It comes from publisher days of Wonder by designers Rob Davio, Matt Leacock again, and Alan R. Moon with art by Cyril Dujon and Julien Delval. What a star-studded cast. Isn't it? We have Matt Leacock just, you know, previously discussed on Daybreak, but also of Pandemic fame. And then we have Matt Leacock and Rob Davio of (laughs) Pandemic Legacy Season 1 fame. And of course, Rob Davio, the inventor of the legacy genre and a person whom we interviewed about legacy games just a couple of episodes past. Uh, Fascinating interview. I recommend everyone go and have a listen. Uh, And finally, Alan R. Moon, the designer of Ticket to Ride. I don't think I need to introduce anyone to Ticket to Ride. However, if you've never heard of Ticket to Ride, it is as staple as potatoes in terms of board games, right? It is one of the first games most people encounter, along with Catan. Uh, It is family weight and family friendly. Uh, It is a game where you play cards to place down choo-choos, and if you connect routes to where your tickets tell you you need to go, you get points. That that's the game. That that that's the f- introduction to those who are not familiar, right? Um, now, my feelings on Ticket to Ride is that I don't like it, and I'm sorry. I know there are loads of Ticket to Ride fans who love this game and get all the expansions, the maps, and you know all that kind of jazz. The smaller versions, I it's. I think it's fine. I I don't enjoy the base game of Ticket to Ride in the same way that I enjoyed the base game of Pandemic and how then Pandemic Legacy subverted for the Legacy version. If you're not familiar with what a Legacy game is, it's like you you know it's a campaign game where like you play the same game over multiple sessions, but after each game or during each game, you put stickers, you write on the board, you tear up cards or put stickers on cards and you you alter components physically so that they become different. And there's new rules introduced all the time, hidden parcels that reveal things. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's a game, it's a box of surprises, basically, is what it is. It's, it's a way to play this same game, but, but with like twists and turns every which way which i guess is appropriate for trains just to make it clear uh, we will not be saying any spoilers yes we, we will not be or spoiling. if we do yeah. then mm. we will make that very clear before we do okay so we are reviewing this after uh half of the campaign we've we're half of the way through i feel like it gave me a good enough idea to talk about it on the podcast uh it, it the campaign is composed of 12 games we played six of them 
And in in a lot of ways, it feels like Ticket to Ride. And uh, that should tell you how I feel about it already, because I don't like Ticket to Ride. And this is Ticket to Ride. And in fact, the very first game we played, it's not even Ticket to Ride. It's like a really stripped down version of Ticket to Ride, which you wouldn't think that there's a lot to strip down, but it turns out that there is. Um, so uh, to those familiar... Uh, in normal Ticket to Ride, there is a number of ways you can score points in the game. Uh, so uh, you can score points by placing routes. Any route you place based on length, the longer it is, the more points you score, right? And then there's the tickets. If you complete them by the end of the game, positive points. If you don't, negative points, right? And finally, this longest route. Whoever has the longest route scores some extra points, right? Two of these three scoring methods have been eliminated, one new one is introduced, you can like get money, and then money is also points at the end of the game. But at the beginning of the game, it's it's not a major source of points. You basically get money if you place trains of the color that your player color is. You get some money. The map is much smaller than base game Ticket to Ride at the beginning, although this is not a spoiler. You can tell that it's going to grow because the board is composed of puzzle pieces <laughs> and at the beginning the puzzle is very incomplete so like it's it's and it's like the east side of the east coast of america mm -hmm. basically you have you know boston new york philly uh fl like no you don't, no, you don't even have florida mm -hmm. there's a chunk of puzzle missing there uh and then it goes up to like chicago i think that's as sure. it's as far west as it goes i think it's like chicago right and then the rest of America is missing. Guess what you're going to be open? Like, this is not a spoiler. Guess what you're going to be opening in terms of map? It is the rest of America. I mean, it does say right? Legends of the West. Right? right. So it hints that you will be traveling west. <laughs> and Florida. And Florida. Um, you know, not, not many surprises in that regard, right? Where it does introduce surprises so there, like any legacy game there there is something there's one thing that's special in it you will open a thing that's special i like the special thing i will say that's all i'll say about <laughs> it i really like the special thing the special thing made my little heart flutter and like because it is a thing that i encountered in an old soviet board game when i was a kid and i thought wow that's fun i want to you can do that to a board game i didn't know that and i've never seen a board game do that since and now there is another board game that does that so that one thing made me very very happy <laughs> uh -huh. right uh -huh. so that was cool uh and and then after that you know there's rules unlocks yes. right and this is where i'm kind of air on it if i'm honest so you have a base game that i admittedly don't love i imagine that for people who love ticket to ride and get every this is going to be a treat this is going to be ticket to ride but like you know start slow but so many different iterations of ticket ride like appear in mm -hmm. different ways and um, you, you know, you do this now, you do that now, you do this. Oh, I can do that. Oh, cool. That's a new thing. You know, if you love Ticket to Ride, this is a box of joy, probably, right? Now, if you don't like Ticket to Ride, unlike, I, I know that like Pandemic Legacy recontextualized Pandemic for a lot of people because like, whoa, okay, cool, mm. right? I, I don't think this will do the same thing. I think this is going to be like, yeah, okay. You know, I don't love this base game. I can see how it can be different. But the difference between Pandemic and Ticket to Ride, right, 
is that pandemic lends itself to a narrative a lot more. And what's funny is when we had Rob Davio talking about, you know, how he designs legacy games and how the idea came about, it was always about narrative, mm. right? It, it was. It seems that this whole idea is born around how can you tell a story in a board game and, you know, how can you make it interesting? How can you make it more narrative-driven? It turns out there's not much you can do with Ticket to Ride narrative-wise because it's like, well, you build trains, right? And the story in Ticket to Ride Legacy Legends of the West is laughable. It is... It is so mustache twirlingly preposterous <laughs> that it's like I'm sorry, what? Sorry, what's this character's name? Uh-huh. Really? Uh-huh. You know, and it's like they're bad for some reason, but you were doing the exact same thing. So, like, I, I, the who, who is the baddie here? I don't know, but not in a way where it's like a philosophical conundrum, but in a way where it's like this is just bizarre. Yeah, I agree with you that the story is quite thin and a little bit confusing and a little bit too bitty. Considering that we have got halfway through, I still don't quite understand why or what or how anything is happening in the story. I don't know why we are doing what we are doing because of what is happening in the story. Like, I know the name of the villain, right? Sure, But I don't know why they're the villain, Um, what they're doing, or what the point of any of it is. and, And the extra little bits of narrative that you get through the game doesn't make that any clearer uh or or for me it hasn't made it any clearer i don't know if you've had other cards that have made it clearer for you however um i think this this edition of this game approaches the approachability just like the initial ticket to ride did uh because it it gives you things it drip feeds you things right so Mm. if you like you you made a good point when you said uh in this podcast episode if you've never played ticket to ride it's about this right and that's what this game does the first game that you play if you've never played ticket to ride before it tells you what you're going to be doing it it sets the scene for the whole campaign but it's less than that i i I think it's like i think it could have done it like punchier and it would have been fine because ticket to ride is fine for the majority of people in the world right as a board game to learn right eliminating two-thirds of the complexity for your first game of ticket to ride i guess you do have like you have to learn what a legacy thing is right but it was it was you've got other things to manage though as well it's not just trains and tracks trains and tracks there are things that if you've never played ticket to ride or a legacy game in mm. fact, then you might appreciate that it's giving you a little bit at a time. And it and I think it makes it as approachable as Ticket to Ride. Whereas, it, it, it is a box anyone can pick up. You're I right. So. Yeah. Yeah. But this wasn't my, you know, kind of big tension point with Ticket to Ride Legacy. What is the big tension point is is that there is everything that it adds subsequently, it feels like a play on that like kind of base formula of Ticket to Ride that doesn't feel like it makes that base formula more interesting. When I played Pandemic Legacy Season mm-hmm. 1, I felt like everything that it added from that first big thing that happens, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't know why I'm keeping Pandemic Legacy Season 1 a secret, but like whatever, there's a first big thing that happens, right? You go, this completely changes how I think about this entire system. Right. This completely changes like what this means what these rules mean how i engage with it 
nothing that got added in the six games of Ticket to Ride Legacy that I played changed anything that like I think I can see that. I can see that. But let me say this, and you can completely disagree with this. That's fine. When we played Pandemic Legacy Season 1, it was a long time ago, right? We hadn't played as many board games as we have now. I had. I don't think I'd ever played a Legacy game. And I hadn't played Pandemic, the non-Legacy version of Pandemic. Mm. I was lost. I was completely lost. I spent at least a couple of the first games that we played just sitting out and letting everyone else make decisions on what was happening because mm. I did not know what was going I didn't know how to control my player piece. I didn't know where I could... I, I didn't understand. What, and it wasn't... This isn't a slight on, like, whoever explained the rules to me. Maybe you explained the rules. I don't know. It was, Or maybe I read the rule book. I don't know. But... But it wasn't a slight on that. It was just I was so overwhelmed by this whole experience that I could not access it. Mm -hmm. I could not approach this game. And mm. and if Ticket to Ride, I, I appreciate everything you're saying. For someone who has played a lot of games and also doesn't like Ticket to Ride, this is not the ideal experience. Yeah. But I think it could be a good experience for other people i so i agree with that right and i can see that argument for like keeping the initial session stripped down but in terms of what it offers new mm. right like i just don't think there's anything that it that it, it offers that makes me feel about ticket to ride any different than no, okay, i did that's before fair. that's fair. right like is is this a more exciting box than ticket to ride yes right so if you've never played ticket to ride you know I guess this would be the ticket to ride, to ride box to buy, except it's a lot more expensive. And it's, it's a lot more hard to get to the table because yeah. you need the same people every time. Exactly. It's two and a half times more expensive than ticket to ride. More expensive if you're not counting, you know, the my first ticket to ride versions, you know, <laughs> like ticket to ride New York, I think, you know, the smaller ones, right? Mm -hmm. Like, which are great for someone who's new to board games or younger, you know, or older or whatever, right? So, W would I suggest someone spend that much money for this quite big box, you know, to basically get Ticket to Ride over and over and over again, different each time, sure, but not different in a way that makes me feel like the changes are somehow, like, meaningfully recontextualizing each play because mm. that's what what I would pay more money for. I appreciate that, yeah. I wouldn't pay more money for just a bit more different, right? I guess if you really already know you love the system, this is a financially efficient way of getting a lot of ticket to ride expansions because they all come, you know, parceled out and doled out in many different steps, right? But but if you just like, hey, let's try this ticket to ride thing, I think it's it's just still probably ticket to ride that the that's the box you buy. And that's all the games we have for this episode. Efka, do you know we have a YouTube channel? Do we really? We do. What's on it? Our podcast. We have a dedicated YouTube channel just for this podcast. There is no visuals. There is no video. But you can, if you prefer to listen to your podcasts via YouTube, you can. Or YouTube Podcasts, which has replaced Google Podcasts, which forces you into the YouTube ecosystem if you want to listen to podcasts that way. So you can now... Now, 
listen to us on YouTube podcasts by going to Talk Cardboard. This feels so unnecessary, but it's the way it is. And so if if you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube or you've been forced to listen to podcasts on YouTube, Talk Cardboard is there. But what if our main episode isn't enough, Efka? What if people want more Talk Cardboard? What can they do? They can get the bonus episodes. There's so many bonus episodes. Every time we release a main episode, there's a bonus episode for our Patreon supporters. Patreon's a website, I'm sure you know, where you give money to us each month. It's patreon.com slash no pun included. Uh, and, And there you will support our video work, our podcast work, and get bonus podcast stuff. You also get access to our exclusive Patreon Discord server, which is a lovely community of people who talk about board games and various things they like, don't like, give each other advice, give each other support, you know, or all, all the good stuff that you would expect from a nice community, right? So that's there as well. Um, it's just a lot of extra talk up. If you like this, you'll get more of this. That That's what you get. You get more of this. So... Patreon.com slash no pun included. On on this bonus episode, we'll talk about Divinity Original Sin, the board game. That's from the people who made Baldur's Gate free, the, the game of the year, according to the Game Awards, the video game of the year, Baldur's Gate free. What's your video of the game of the year? Super Mario Wonder. I thought you were going to say Baldur's Gate free because we've been playing that and enjoying it. Mine is... Super Mario Wonder. But <laughs> but I really did like Baldur's Gate 3. I think it's really, really cool. We are enjoying it. So yeah. so if if you want to hear what a board game is like made by the people who made the video game of the year, not ours, but most people's, um, <laughs> you know, you, you can listen to that. Well, I'll also talk about a slightly older game called Mystic Veil. If you're familiar with that, I have some thoughts on it. Uh, that didn't sound positive because it wasn't. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've got anything to say to us, it's Elaine at nopunincluded.com. And finally, Efka, what is the game of this episode? It's Daybreak. That's easy, right? It's Daybreak. And with that, why don't you say goodbye, Elaine? Goodbye, Elaine. Goodbye, Elaine. <laughs>